Welcome to the You Can Have It All podcast to create a successful business and a thriving family. I am your host, Mona Tavassili. Hello and thank you for tuning in. I am back with another exceptional story of a mother whose mission is to save the world and this time the Himalayas. Yes, that's correct. She is on a mission to bring back our forests. Today, I have a pleasure to share my interview with Shiba Sen, founder and CEO of Alap that she founded in 2017. But before I tell you more about Shiba and Alap, let me share with you a quote from Gandhi that is at the bottom of all Shiba's emails. It says, the enemy is fear. We think it's hate, but it's fear. The women that I have interviewed as part of my Women on a Mission Vital Voices series are some of the most fearless women I've ever met in my life. No dream is too big and no mission is too out of reach for them. Shiba is exceptionally intuitive and her wisdom made our conversation one of the most remarkable ones. Let me tell you a little bit more about Shiba. Shiba is a lawyer by education and training. She studied international relations at the London School of Economics, followed by the legal practice course at the University of Oxford. She practiced at an international law firm in London for three years before returning to India in 2011, driven by a strong need to devote her life in service of the underprivileged in her country. Setting up base in Mumbai for a year, she worked with small independent coffee farmers in southern India, helping them promote their products and demand fairer prices. While splitting her time between Mumbai and the coffee farms, Shiba began to feel an even stronger pull towards the rural environment. Pulled towards the Himalayas, she visited a remote village in rural Himalayas in 2012. It took just one visit to Satuli and Shiba knew that this was where she wanted to set up her life, living amongst and working for rural communities. For the next three years, she worked with a rural development organization in the region called Aruhi. As the CEO of the organization, she expanded Aruhi's funder and volunteer base and initiated youth outreach initiatives. She left Aruhi in December 2016 and founded Alap. Alap is a social enterprise working at the intersection of climate change and poverty alleviation. Its mission is to empower communities in the most fragile ecosystems in the world to restore their degraded habitats by growing natural forests. It does so through a triple bottom line model that invests in communities by providing leadership training to create eco-champions and generating employment through restoration activities. Currently, it's working in the central Himalayan region in India. I'm extremely excited to share Shiba's interview with you, and I'm confident that you're going to love it as much as I do. Let's hear it together. Hi, Shiba, another VV Lead Fellow. I'm super excited to have you here, and thank you for giving me your time after a long day that we had today. Oh, I'm, I'm really um, honored to be here, actually, and excited um, to share my story with your community and you. Tell us a little bit more about it. How did you start? Why did you start it? And what is your message? A love um, sort of happened in my life about nearly two years ago now. I uh, am from India. And for the past six years, I've been living in rural Himalayas. And Alap is um, helping rural communities in India to help them bring back their native forests. Um, because uh, mainly rural communities anywhere in the world, including in India. Uh, they live near forests and they're dependent upon forests for their basic lives. Like mm. you and I, we're dependent upon electricity and basic comforts in the city. They depend upon forests for their survival. And most of these forests are now gone. So I work with them to help them bring back their own forests. Um, so this journey, as most journeys in um, in our lives are not always planned. So um, I'm not a trained forester. Mm. I don't have an ecology background. I don't have a development background. I'm a trained lawyer. And I've worked in a corporate law firm for three years wow. in London. And um, all I was, I think that I, you know, I could think back to my life in my early 20s. I always thought that I wanted to be someone who could make people around me their lives better in some way it gave me some level of fulfillment and joy which was a big part of who i was then and it continues today 
So one thing led to another. I studied in England and um, frankly I did law because I didn't know what else to do. So mm -hmm. it was like by a process of elimination. So I didn't have any uh, ambitions as such. I was a free-flowing, happy-go-lucky person. And I got a chance to study at a good university in England. And I took it up. And then I thought, oh, all right, so I'm in England. I might as well make more of my time here. And I got a job. And when I was working in the corporate law firm, I was more and more clear that I didn't want to make rich people richer and that I wanted to go back home and uh, make myself useful there. And one thing led to another and I found myself with my husband in 2006 in the summer um, in the Himalayas and we took on a route just traveling the roads and we landed up in this remote village and um, we started walking and it was almost like an absolute calling for me that uh, that place was so beautiful the landscape and while i could see the himalayas in front of me i was just enchanted by forests there I, 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 everything the people the houses and and i would say it happened at a time when i was looking for some transformation i was mm. i'd come back from england i was disillusioned with the city I used to get bored in the city and this is when I've been raised in a city and in India, in New Delhi, which is one hell of a city. So I'm very comfortable in that sort of an environment. And when I found myself in the middle of nowhere, I thought, this is it. This is where I need to work. So um, I think where my action came was I seized that opportunity. I had no idea how I was going to make that work because my husband had a job in the city. Mm. Um, I knew no one there. It was not your usual sort of, you, know, you make a shift in your career. Uh, I had my parents. I come from India. We are a very typical middle class family. I'd already left England to come back home. So my parents were absolutely horrified. And then my husband who works in the financial sector was slightly worried that how are we going to make these things work. But all of these remained as challenges. I just uh, recognized that this was something that was an opportunity for me to um, also channelize my love for trees from childhood and then channelize my need to serve. And I chose my cause, so to say. And then things started to happen. I did some research and I found an organization that was working with grassroots Himalayan communities for the past 25 years. Wow. So it was very established. Um, so I contacted them and uh, they were very intrigued by my background and they actually welcomed someone who had a law background and I'd worked with environmental law before, I'd worked with Greenpeace before. And I'd done lots of volunteering in India and in abroad uh, with the development sector. I'd worked with Oxfam, ActionAid, in small internships, even in prisons, uh, three-month internship, because my intent was there. And they were delighted. They said, oh, so how do we make this work? I said, I don't know the transition, but can I start volunteering for you while I figure things out? And it just started from there. One thing led to another, and I started working with this organization. And for the past six years, um, I've been living there, we made a home there, we had a daughter, and it was, I think it was just a resolve to have faith that if there is something that's calling out to me, um, then I need to respond to that because it's meant to be. It was like a faith thing. I knew nothing about what I was getting into. I just wanted to serve. And you listened to that calling because a lot of times we hear that calling, but then we just ignore it many, many times. So I'm interested to know, um, how did you know it's your calling? So a lawyer from which university? Uh, I went to Oxford. So Oxford graduates, you know, you had many opportunities in England. So uh, logic uh, says that we stayed there. You know, that's where you can make a living. That's where your future is. So that's what I believe like the, the standards yeah. would 
tell us to follow but then yet you decided to come back to India which absolutely is a beautiful country I have been to many countries but India is very different the energy here is very different so the contrast the people so I I can see why you wanted to come back but also in terms of opportunity or raising family that's a big decision that you made so tell me how did you know it's your calling um, when did you find out about the problems of the forest? Because these are the things you shared with us during the fellowship. So tell me a little bit about the problem and how did you uh, decide to solve it? So I started working with this organization and that was my learning ground because it was an established organization and um, slowly I got into a role of looking at their youth work, looking at their livelihoods work and for the last two years that I was working with them I actually landed up heading the organization. Yes. So I used to just travel to the villages because that was my learning ground and because I was wanting to do that, I was wanting to learn that how these people who live in one of the most beautiful parts of the world are so poor and unhappy and that was a biggest tragedy to me because that place had given me my home and I considered myself a person with choice I was able to act on my choice but these communities who were living right next to me were totally helpless so I visited and spent time with these communities and and that just meant that I was spending time amongst forests because that's how rural communities live. They live amongst nature. So um, that's how I learned how their lives are inextricably, mm. intimately connected with these forests. So, you know, normally when we talk about poverty, very rarely do we understand that actually poverty uh, is ecological by origin. Most of the poor people in the world are poor, uh, living in rural areas. Most people living in rural areas are very closely dependent on forests for their basic needs. Mm. So when our forests or nature or environment is not in harmony, the perpetuity of poverty continues. So for poor people, their economics is their environment. It's very simple. So today it has taken me sort of five years to hmm. get to this point by just spending time with people. And it was uh, a joy and a, it was, yes, it was a privilege, but it was exciting for me. It was what I was wanting to do. But that doesn't mean it wasn't difficult for me. You know, I had a little baby by that time and I would take her with me everywhere. But in hindsight, that enhanced my, I think, experience because I was able to connect with young mothers that how it must feel that you have children. My child was by my choice. Most of these young women just having multiple pregnancies. It's not their choice. They get pregnant. Mm -hmm. They work so hard. They're up 4 a.m. in the morning and they sleep at about 11 p.m. at night. They have to clean the house, look after the children, go and fetch firewood, which is nearly five hours away because all forest, the tree line is going further and further away. They need fodder for their cattle. Then they have to get milk out of the cattle. Then they have to clean and bathe the cattle every day. Then the children come back from school. Then they have to feed them, clean the house, then go to the farm. I mean, it's endless. And I started relating to them at a very personal level and um, so that was when um, in my organization which was working on health livelihoods education I decided to resign in 2015 um, just a little less than three years ago and I said I am going to work mainly with these communities and forests because those are the two things that matter to me the most and now we are working with these communities, build, um, helping them bring that back their forests by teaching them ways to grow trees better, to grow their forest better, and also investing in them as leaders, helping them find their voices. That's amazing, Shiva. And uh, do you work with the government or other um, you know, entities for this cause? Can I call it a cause? Uh, yeah, it is a cause. I think it's one of the biggest causes facing the world today. Um, 
absolutely. Now, you know how women are. Women are nurturers. Women realize that we have to take people together with us. The fact is that to understand our problem, we always have to understand who all is causing that problem. Um, so in this case, the governments all over the world and in India and in Himalayas largely own the forest lands, right? So if they are not going to protect and conserve forests uh, for the welfare of the communities that live there and the biodiversity, but only manage them for revenue, which is a very colonial mindset that exists in the state of um, the forest department today in India, then no matter what we do, we're not really ever going to have any impact because this is a particular problem because ecology is not isolated. So mm -hmm. if I have a little home and I plant some trees at the back of my home, but the rest of the hillside or rest of the fields that are owned by the government are still degraded, my life will still not improve. I'll still not get out of the cycle of poverty. So um, for this particular work, the state was absolutely vital for us to work with. And the history of forestry initiatives and in India and often all over the world is because you feel so powerless in front of the state, you ignore it and you just work with communities and you also think that they are your enemies. But I'm a firm believer that they're not our enemies. They're just not thinking and feeling the same way that they could, like I do. If I was in their place, I would act differently. So I just keep thinking that how do I get them to see and feel what I'm feeling? So we definitely work with the state. We work with local governments. We work with um, state government. And over the years, we have to get to, you know, get more and more government involvement in our work and connect them and get them to see what these communities are facing. That's very interesting. In your field, Shiba, it's a very male-dominant, I would assume, uh, environment. And um, you have very strong character and I'm sure that what you're doing is not easy but at the same time you are a female very feminine and you are um, not aggressive I would say that sometimes in this kind of environment you think that you have to be really aggressive to make sure that your voice is heard you are all about collaboration empathy the things that in a traditional environment they might even see it as a weakness but this is, these are all the things that we're learning during the Vivi Lead Fellowship that are actually strength. And uh, in the modern leadership, these are the assets that a leader can have. But in a traditional way, it might still be seen as a weakness. So how do you deal with that? Um, so I have uh, often felt that firstly, when you are younger and then you're a woman, uh, the male um, counterpart it's both ways. They don't want to. They don't want to take you seriously, but they're also mildly intimidated because they're not used to dealing with women who have a voice. I mean, there are many offices where I go in the local government bureaucracy in India, and this is rural India. Uh, they don't even have toilets for women. Women have never been there, right? No, they've never been there. Mm. Let alone someone who uh, perhaps can speak to them. Um, sort of face to face at an equal platform. So I've, so I, it's not to say that I haven't faced this sort of a situation and it hasn't made me uncomfortable and angry. Um, but over time, what I'm learning is when you're yourself, then it kind of sets the tone. I don't have to be an aggressive um, sort of a person to make my voice heard and that's what we learn, as you said, be yourself because your voice is not in the volume or how you speak, it's what you feel. And so I, I, whenever I'm in these situations, the only thing that I'm learning right, right now that that man sitting opposite to me has got to feel what I'm feeling. And it takes time. But uh, I see that it can work and what I, also see what works better is the power of love. So when I share my passion, um, I think your anyone's passion is what is infectious. 
what you remember. You may not remember after this podcast what I exactly do, but you may remember that whatever I do, I'm passionate about that. So let your passion flow. And don't think what the other person needs to hear. Obviously, you manage the situation, but largely it's about what you feel and try and transmit that emotion. Very interesting. And feminine is strong. I think men love it. So, yeah. So, I think it's a welcome break for them to maybe have someone. And I strongly believe that we complement each other. Yes. You don't. Absolutely. She's just turned five. That's amazing. So you have different roles. You are a mother, you're a wife, you're a community leader, and you're really making change happen. So tell me how, how do you find that balance or harmony in your life between your different roles? You have to actively work at it, which is what I've learned as I've gone along. Um, so for me, uh, motherhood is, um, I think since it's happened to me, um, it has really driven to what I am. And often it's the mirror for me to whom I want to become. Because I always uh, think that uh, when my daughter grows up, I don't want to tell her that follow your heart or follow your passion or be yourself or be proud of who you are. I want her to just see that happen all her life with her parents and her family and her community. Uh, so for me, I think it's a great motivating factor, even when I'm struggling. Um, so my motherhood is, I take it as my, um, sort of my steam often. And uh, so for managing different roles, I think the key to that is support, is support True. system. I think every single woman, every single mother who's working or doing things and fitting multiple roles, um, we'll say it's all about support and that starts if you're lucky enough to have a supporting partner so your partner is your primary support system and the way uh, you and your partner support each other the extended family responds to that um, so um, in india you know we rely on family a lot for support um, so it's whether it's my mother uh, my cousins, my in-laws, um, our neighbors in the village, you know, it takes a village to raise a child and God knows literally. I'm literally doing that. And being mindful that it's not easy, but it wasn't meant to be easy. But what would you, what would make you feel better? Not doing what you're doing or working harder and reaching out to people for help and then be able to follow your passion too. And we always figure it out, right? Yes. We always figure. Yes. There was a saying that behind every decision, there are two possible emotions, either love or fear. And I always say choose love because nothing good comes out of fear. And you're a great example that when you heard your calling, that, that was the love for me that was calling you and you listened to that. So tell me a little bit more about what does future look like with the work that you're doing? What is your dream? So my dream is when um, people start to feel the connection that they have with their planet, with Earth, with nature. When they start to internalize that feeling, we will change the way we are building our world. What will happen if we don't? So tell me also about, because you shared some amazing statistics and information with us. And I believe the awareness is missing now amongst the community, amongst all of us. So I see a lot of times it's very easy to label um, a cause like this as a tree hugger or, you know, you don't have anything else to do. There are so many other issues. There is war, people are dying, etc. But that's very short-sighted in my opinion. Like you're thinking of something which can be one of the biggest problems in the near future. 
I'm not talking about like 200 years from now. So tell us a little bit also about what if, if we don't take care of it, what will happen? Well, we won't stay alive for very long. See, the thing is, people always talk about saving the planet. Now, the thing is, the planet is going to be fine. I don't think the planet needs us. It has had a much longer life than us. It's those sort of billions of years. And it has had ice ages and volcanoes and God knows what not. And it adapts. That's nature. But we need the planet. Because if you think in the larger context that we can become extinct, well, that's fine to you and I sitting today. It doesn't matter if we were to become extinct. Frankly, when we think about the big cosmos, it doesn't matter if human species was to be wiped out of the planet. But if you keep zooming in, and it, it is funny, but the thing is, it's, it's good to think like that. <laughs> I didn't expect to be that dramatic, to be honest. No, but it is. Because, you know, sometimes you think we have to save the planet, save the planet. No, you don't have to save the planet, save yourself. So the thing is, working with environment, number one, it's long-sighted. It's like a legacy work. It's like when a child is born. You know, there's nothing immediate. You're investing from day one in the future. So environment is our future, which determines what is our present. So why we need to think about what's happening to the environment, and each of us has to think about that, because that directly affects the quality of our life today and for our children tomorrow, and for their children, and so on. And just imagine a world, which is a reality today, more and more, where our water is drying, right? We take these things for granted. We really do. But really, for majority of the people in the world, it's not for granted. And we talk about health, right? Health is directly related to what your environment is, what you grow, what you eat, what water you're drinking, right? Then we talk about poverty. And I talked about it before. Poverty is inherently ecological. Poverty is not just money. Imagine if everyone in the world only lived in cities, like the whole world was just cities. Because we have our little worlds, which is this urbanized world, which is a man-made centers. Where does the water in your tap come from? It doesn't come from a pipe. It comes from a river. Where do rivers come from? So the thing is, people who think about these issues, you cannot work totally with an intellectual mindset. That's science. Science backs that. What you and I and everyone needs to do to feel that this is an urgent problem, global warming, you may say, doesn't really affect me because it may not affect you massively in Canada today, mm. right? But the point is, if you were to really feel a certain deep connection with, say, the forest, there is something in you that is going to tell you that I need to save this. I hope these trees stay here forever. Because human beings are really part of nature. We are one, you know, the oneness that we, you can say spiritually feel, because I often talk in the meta sense, yeah. but this is backed by science as well. So our molecular structure is exactly the same as the molecular structure of trees. And there's a book called uh, The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Wallenberg, who talks about how trees communicate, how trees live in families, how trees tell each other when there is a pest attack. They have a microcosal fungal network that is like their highways. That's how information travels. So mother trees look after baby trees. When a tree is sick, it sacrifices its life so that maybe the children can get those nutrients. Then there are grandparent trees. Then there are enemies. There are some fights. There are competitors. They're not all competing wow. all the time. They're collaborating. They are like this one super organism. They're not living by themselves. 
that is just like us. We need our communities. And the way nature heals us, your medicine may cure your symptoms, but what is healing? So more and more misery in the world, again, I'm talking about in the meta sense, and then you talk about in the statistic sense, everything is related to our environment. It is absolutely mind-blowing when you think about that. And I wasn't planning to ask this, or I wasn't prepared for it, but it comes to my mind that as human beings, we always believe that we are the most intellectual species on planet Earth. And there's this belief that like everything else from animals to nature is there to serve us. And when you think about it, I personally believe that actually the trees and birds and other beings on planet Earth know something that we as human beings are not aware of it. They are a lot more conscious. Their consciousness, I believe, again, I don't know if it's true or not, but I feel it's a feeling that they are living in a harmony that as human beings, we have lost that harmony. When I go, for example, in nature or when I uh, climb a mountain, I become a lot more humble because I know it's not my physical strength. When I was climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, it was, I felt it was an invitation and I knew that no matter how hard I tried, I wouldn't have been able to go to the top if I did not respect the nature. So there's something beyond our logic. There's something beyond um, what we think about, and that's how we feel, that I believe we still need to learn as human beings. Absolutely. Um, I think uh, we have a different consciousness to animals. Um, but what has happened over the years is we didn't start out like that. Mm. right? There was along the line somewhere where we lost our connection. But we weren't made to lose our connect. You know, we are very much part of that ecosystem. So often when we talk about this to people, um, they place the ecosystem circle where there's a human being on top and everything exactly. is serving the human being. But really it's part of a circle. So we call this in sort of our work, it's there's an anthropogenic approach to conservation, which is what the largely the world is today. And in India, this is what largely the state does. So you manage forests to meet the needs of the people. Mm. Then you define what are the needs of the people. Largely, it's money when it comes to state. When you put us in a circle, you realize that we are just another species. Everything is not working to serve us, but we're all interconnecting and serving each other. Each other. So I always say it's not just that the f we need the forests. I mean, there are million one statistics that tell us why we need our forests. You, you can Google it and find it. But the forests need us too. And it is that need when we feel it, when we experience it, that leads to our growth. That leads to our spiritual growth. So I'm not saying that you're going to be super happy if you're just closed um, within forests because a lot of uh, communities aren't. So human nature is human nature. But when we are in harmony, the suffering can be less. When I'm working in the Himalayas and when I'm living there, I mean, I have a super hectic life. But because I'm largely in rhythm with nature's flow, it doesn't stress me out normally. It tires me, exhausts me, and drains me. But it normally doesn't stress me out. Mm. So often, I mean, this is, you know, we're talking to a, a lot of audience here and not like everyone's living in a forest, right? So we're living in cities, we have hectic lives. How many times do you find some calmness when you go and sit on a bench under a tree? Next time you're sitting on a bench under a tree, try and talk to that tree. I know I might sound ridiculous, but it's sometimes you need to be ridiculous to make magic happen. Try and talk to that tree. And if you're ready for it, try and hug that tree. I don't think hugging trees is only for hippies. Put on your high heels, feel good, and go and hug a tree. I'm gonna try that. Please. You really do that. <laughs> and let me know. And do it multiple times because it'll take you time. I absolutely believe that there's magic in nature that, um, so I lived away from nature kind of for 20 years when I was in Dubai. And yes, we have the um, 
desert and we have the beach and I was very grateful for that but I'm talking about the green area mountain and in the forest like when I was in Mal- Malaysia for the first time I went actually inside the forest I felt there was a magic and beyond my understanding and I still don't understand it so I'm not trying to to even talk about it because I can't use or find words to describe it but I absolutely believe that there is there is something beyond our understanding that happens within the nature. For example, when the birds fly together and they all fly in, in such a harmony. So in Canada, I was in a law firm and we we're in downtown in a, a very posh building, one of the top law firms for a training. And then I just looked at the sky and I was amazed by these like 15 birds that they were flying in such a harmony. I was like, wow. There's such a difference between, you know, as human beings, right, trying to do, 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 make everything happen. And then there are beings that are just there and they're just enjoying their being. So there's a lot that we can learn from that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, nature is inherently healing for us because we're really a part of nature. And when we um, experience that disconnectedness, so there's disharmony. Exactly. There's disharmony amongst humans at the moment that we need to. It's not just about the forest. It's not just about Himalayas, but it's not just about those. It's the simple principle of harmony that we have lost as human beings, that you are solving it. And again, that gives us all hope that at least somebody is doing something about it. Well, there are many people doing lots of things about it. And um, there's a scientist, actually. Um, in Japan, Dr. Akira Miyawaki, whose mm. work we follow in our work, in our uh, work with growing natural forests. And he always says, you know, we need to create real forests to have real people. We yes. have fake forests like these plantations. What we are replacing are natural forests are disappearing every second. Like if we need statistics, you know, I say last year we lost every second we lost a football pitch or forest wow and i and i always tell people that you know what we are losing are natural forests real forests forests with diverse number of trees and birds and life because just a bunch of trees doesn't make a forest true so we need our environment natural forests to have natural real people in the world to stay connected. And when we are in harmony, we'll connect with each other. World peace is not going to happen only by GDP. Mm. So environment is, frankly, like for world peace, for poverty, we need a new index that brings in the role of our environment that causes economic poverty, that causes emotional poverty, we're frankly getting poorer by the day. Look at how we feel. That's one of the challenges that, again, I don't have a solution for it, but I feel it, that as human beings, we don't even have the patience for nature. Even when you go for a walk, we are on our phones. So we don't have, we don't detach completely to to understand the nature. Even when we're inside the nature, we are still distracted. Um, and that worries me including myself, so I'm not saying I don't do that, including myself, but I'm very aware that we are losing that patience and vibrating at the same frequency of the nature by being distracted all the time and being addicted to those distractions. So I strongly believe that we need to do something that's a, that will become a big issue if we don't become aware of it or do something on personal level. Yeah, and, and I think that is, um, frankly, the pulse of our work. Hmm. So the way we are trying to approach this issue, it's very simple. So we work in rural India. Currently, we work in rural Himalayas. And we say that these communities are poor. They lack the dignity of choice because their basic livelihoods are threatened. Hmm. They are threatened because their real forests have gone and over the years they've been replaced in by monocultured what we call as fake forests. They are just 
tree plantations of commercial species. They look with, green only. So it's the wrong kind of green. Mm. And so how do we do that? So we follow Dr. Miyawaki's work and we say, let's make little, little patches of natural forests. And in the act of making that forest, a lot happens. When you see these saplings growing, a lot happens. And these forests grow 10 times faster than your natural plantation methods because we are following science. Mm. We're observing nature and then we are copying that. So the results are incredible. So as human beings, as you said, we are impatient. But when this tangible that is given to us by nature happens in our real time, it's a transformative experience. So just making, planting forests is not going to solve this big issue. But it's the transformation that happens during that process. When you start connecting with what you're growing in earth with your hands, that is the key to solve conservation issues. So hence we invest in people. Hence we take the government along with us. And the running theme for us is oneness with nature. So we bring in science, we uh, work with communities, we work with the governments, we work with children, and we physically grow native forests. And we work on this theme of oneness with nature, not just being aware of the statistics and the scientific interventions that go with it. We place a lot of focus on science, but also what we feel. Hmm. So experiencing that oneness with nature leads to certain transformation at the self level. And then it spreads to your community. And when the communities feel something very strongly, that is really the only way for any systemic change. That is so powerful. That alone is so powerful that the inner transformation of one person can have a huge effect on the things and people and environment around him. And there's a certain humility mm. and strength that comes when we are in harmony with nature. The, if you spend more time with these communities who are struggling to have a dignified life, because they don't have the basics, you know, they're struggling with their basic needs. But you find that they are very peaceful people. Mm. They're still amazingly content. They don't really have any aggression. They're poor and unhappy and indignified, but they're not aggressive or angry. They're still very peaceful. So yes, I mean, um, you look at Dalai Lama, you know, you look at the Buddha. Mm. Yeah, when harmony, it's inner and outer ecology, you know. Every second of the day, we are interacting with our environment. Environment is in every, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the energy, how we are feeling uh, a place, how it smells. Mm. It is all your environment. And forests play a very big role in that. Life on land, largely, is, it's, it's really, forests are the core of it. And I believe there has been a huge shift and raising human beings' consciousness. So we are a lot more aware now. Like before we weren't even aware, oh, there is a forest, good, we can just cut all the trees and have more houses or tables or same thing with animals. But we are a lot more conscious now. So that's a very positive sign. Yeah, and I'm glad we're growing. having this, yeah, we're having this conversation together. Shiba, what is your um, favorite motto? So um, I'd say connect with nature mm -hmm. and magic will happen. Love that. Love that. And I'm going to try. Now that we're in Canada, I can actually do that. <laughs> you know, we yeah. live five minutes away from a mountain that I can hike. Yes. And uh, I'll definitely do that. So and now I'm going to hug the trees yeah. and I'll tell you the result, Shiba. Um, tell me what is your all when do you feel fulfilled I think when I'm being true to myself mm -hmm. so I might feel sad or happy but I feel peaceful when I'm being true to myself 
Very nice. And t- give me a success or a failure story that gave you the biggest lesson. So, you know, when I resigned from uh, the organization I was working for and I decided that I'm going to work with forests and communities and uh, help them, uh, you know, basically make them, mobilize them and make them, shake them and say, uh, you know the importance of these forests. Why aren't you doing your bit? Why are we just waiting for the government to change some uh, policy one day? So I would go to these villages and I would say, everyone needs to come for a meeting. And in hindsight, when I think about it, I was just lecturing them mm. and making them aware of the importance of forests, where really, frankly, they probably knew much more about that than I did. So I completely underestimated the communities that I was going to serve. And I realized that a lot of things that we discussed today in design thinking happened to me initially. And this is after four years when I was still living there because I was so desperate to get going and say, this is a solution and you know, you have to do what I'm saying that often people would just listen to me because they were polite. Hmm. And they realized that, yeah, she means well, but I mean, we know all this, right? And, but then they had other things to do, you know, they have to feed children, she has to go to the farm. She, she hasn't got time to just sit and say, oh yes, we need to do something, we need to do something, we need to plant and get our forest back. And I realized that I have to change, make the shift from awareness to experiencing. Okay. So I don't do awareness workshops anymore. We do experiential workshops. So I, over time, had to convince, I, re, I mean, it was almost embarrassing. And I said, I have to go back to these same people. And when they would take their walks, these women, to the forest, I would go on those walks with them because they had to collect firewood and fodder and because the tree line was going further and further away, these women would walk normally up to three, four hours one side to collect daily needs of their fodder and Mm. firewood. I would go with them. And then during that process, you know, this is the only time the women would have with them, with each other. So they would sit down and crack a joke and, you know, because home is just full of work and worries and all the stress. So here they would sort of have a release. And that's when I started saying, right, we're going to do some activities here. And we were very shy in the beginning. And we started doing these, like, you know, even just experiencing the forest they've known all their lives. And I've got these amazing footages where these young boys have come up to me and said, you know, Didi, we've known these forests all our lives, but we've never felt them. Just mind-blowing. So these are people who have were born and raised in these forests, but because they are so... Uh, dependent on these forests and don't get their basic water. They have to walk up to 10 kilometers. This is in the lush Himalayan zone Hmm. because we've deforested all the real natural forest which would provide water, conserve water with these just commercial trees growing everywhere. So the thing is when these people started to experience forests and then we brought in this scientific methodology of Dr. Miyawaki's work Mm. and say, hey, it's not like forests always take so much time to grow. You're not planting them the right way. You know, you need to plant your shrubs and you need to plant your sub trees, trees, canopies. Let's make a real forest and you'll see it grows fast. So that was the excitement of the tangible as well. And these people experiencing something and then want to do more and more. What type of support do you need to Is there something that our audience can do? And where can they find you to learn more about your activities? So they can find us online, uh, all the social media platforms at Alap. I make sure I'll add those on the show notes. And uh, go and have a look at our work. Uh, we've got lots of pictures to uh, show you what we're doing. Do you and accept donations? Is it something that people can do? Yes, we need it. Okay. Yes, we need it. And Listeners. we need all of you. <laughs> and in fact, currently we're doing crowdfunding. Okay. We want to create a forest of 12,000 saplings in the rains of February. And, and so we're creating a forest in February of 12,000 saplings in the Himalayas. Nice. And if anyone wants to come to the rural Himalayas in India, come with us, stay and make this forest. 
if you would like to support us plant certain trees for you your family um, we'll plant them for you and you'll be creating a mini forest in the himalayas forever there was a saying that every human being needs to plant at least one tree i haven't done that yet so maybe I'll, i'll come to you, you go, <laughs> we'll, we'll do that together shiva thank you so much It's 10 p.m. and we have all been awake since very early morning, had a very long day, so I really appreciate it. And um, tell me one thing that others don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's amazing. Uh, if you were to ask my mother, she'd say that, you know, what do you think is one thing that really strikes you about Sheba? She'd say, yeah, she's very... You know, she's always had a very bad temper. Oh, oh I can't believe that. I cannot believe that. Had, she has her father's temper. <laughs> yeah. So it's amazing. I think I'm sort of not the same person that I was, but people often have a similar reaction to that. To me, Shiba, you're one of the calmest people that I've ever met. And when people say you have to live in a flow, I believe that you're living in that flow. Like everything, the way you're making all of these big changes happen with such a peaceful uh, character, it's amazing. So, no, I don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, Shiba's I... mom. <laughs> yes, mommy, I've changed. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Shiva. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to uh, coming to Himalayas. Please. And experiencing that. You're always welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It was such a pleasure sharing Shiba's work and story with you. It's one of my dreams and goals to spend some time with Shiba in Himalayas. There is so much to learn from nature and to connect with our inner self. I have shared a couple of stories of extraordinary women that I met in Vital Voices this month. And I will continue sharing their stories throughout the year. These women are working on challenges that we usually leave to the government or other entities to take care of. We feel that we require a lot of resources to make change happen. But these women from Kiran, who has impacted 2.2 million students all around the world through her curriculum, to Saskia, who is working with mothers and women in prisons in Mexico, and Shiba, who is saving our forests. These women are a proof that even the sky is not a limit. I have shared their stories in my previous episodes and all these amazing women are a part of the Vital Voices community, which I have talked more about in episode four when I interviewed Emily Goodman, the senior program manager of leadership and global activations at Vital Voices. Now over to you. There is a reason that you are here and I believe in you and your mission. Keep on dreaming and I would love to learn more about you and hopefully share your story one day. Have a wonderful day.